You may not care what the government's doing, and you may think what I'm doing is a total waste of time, but here's the problem. They're thinking about you. Yes, is Bitcoin going to work? Are we going to see this revolution through and everything? I mean, I think any help we can get along the way is a, is a positive help. Hello there. How are you all? How has your week been? It's been a pretty good one here. Pretty busy. Got a massive weekend ahead. Rail Bedford, my football team, we're playing Northampton Silby Rangers. They're one of our title contenders, so it is a massive game. I'm very excited, very nervous. We've also got a meetup before the game, which is going to be cool. We're doing a Bitcoin meetup covering why we need Bitcoin, why it's such an important technology. Hopefully you're going to see some of you down there. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an absolute banger of a show. I've got Jason Brett on. Some of you will know him as Regulatory Jason. I met him last year at the conference in Miami. Now, with the whole crypto contagion of the last year and the current group of regulation that we're seeing, it was time to address this on the show. So we asked Jason to come out to Nashville and record with us. Now, Jason worked at the FDIC during the 2008 financial crisis, and a large part of the show is dedicated to this, what happened, what he saw, what the reactions were. Honestly, it's probably the most fascinating part of the show. Could have made a whole show on that itself. Now, Jason is actively working on Bitcoin policy and covered what happened in 2008 in the show and what we can expect to happen here. So a very interesting show. I think you're all going to love this one. Now, just a couple of notes. I'm heading out to New York this Sunday in a couple of days. We've got two events in New York, if you're interested. On the 14th at 2.45, we're going to be at PubKey. We're going to be watching the live stream of the Real Bedford game. Come down and join us. Be good to see some of you. And then on the 16th, on the Thursday, in the evening at 6.30 p.m., we're going to be running our first WBD Live, a live event, a live interview with Junset, a Q&A and afterwards and then a hangout if you want to get tickets to the WBD live event they are available on the website which is whatbitcoindid.com also please do go and check out our Patreon we've got loads of new content we're going to be publishing some exclusive content from New York you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid okay if you've got any questions about this anything else please do drop me an email it's hello at whatbitcoindid.com Jason, nice to finally meet you. Nice meeting you, Peter. Have you seen the phone sticker, Pete? Hold on, what? Ha! Ah, uh, you're just trying to get favor with me, aren't you? Where did you, hold on, where did you get that? Uh, from him. Oh, today? Uh, yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, if you'd have turned up with that, that would have been a different story. I know, I know. Yeah. Have you any merch? No. We'll have to no. sort that at some point. Yes, yes. Uh, regulatory, Jason. Welcome to the podcast, man. Thank you. Uh, it's good to be here. Danny, uh... As he often does these days, he's like, we've got to get Jason on the podcast. Jason's the nuts. We've got to get Jason on. So listen, look, welcome. Um, not everyone in the Bitcoin community will know who you are, what you're up to. So I don't always do this, uh, but probably is good for you to give a bit of your background so people know who you are. Sure. Thanks, Peter. Um, I'm a, a former FDIC regulator during the financial crisis in 2008. Uh, so I worked at the FDIC. I was in finance and capital markets. Um, so I started there right when the IndyMac bank crisis occurred. And I basically saw that and then in capital markets went through the Lehman Brothers crisis, Merrill Lynch uh, acquisition of Bank of America, dealing with all the AIG counterparties, figuring all this stuff out, kind of at ground zero during the financial crisis. And uh, that's like the beginning of my Bitcoin uh, story because I realized there was only the faith and trust of the US government that everyone was trying to preserve. And there was a crack in that that I think Bitcoin got out during that time. 
So I went on to be a regulator for about seven or eight years, didn't really hear too much about Bitcoin, was involved in trying to help people save their homes with the Home Affordable Modification Program from Obama, making sure large banks were following the rules on that so people wouldn't get foreclosed or have an opportunity to refinance their mortgage. Um, and then by 2016, I ran into Perry and Boring, who've seen on your show. And she, yeah, Perry is great. Oh, wonderful. And she hired me in as the director of operations for the Chamber of Digital Commerce. And I knew nothing about it, but I was like, this is really interesting because this is sort of, my thoughts are, is there something else that we could rely on for money? So I, I did that. Um, I worked probably now the last five or six years. My whole career has been in working with politicians, r- r- regulators, and the regulation of Bitcoin and the, the space and trying to help both people in Congress and also administrators and in, in agencies understand what this space is all about. My, my claim to fame is that uh, I pitched the Department of State on offering education through a nonprofit that I founded called the Value Technology Foundation. And part of the bitch that I thought they would just reject me on was to teach them how Bitcoin mining worked. But they actually accepted it because they wanted to understand it. And I was explaining, you know, other nations like North Korea might be doing this. So you need to understand like how it works. And so doing a demo of that was really cool. Oh my God. So, uh, Wow. So you worked at the FDIC during the 2008 financial crisis. Yes. So that's, I mean, just that itself is incredible. Uh, I've taken a lot of interest in the 2008 financial crisis, more trying to understand why it happened. Um, We made, uh, I used to have this other podcast called Defiance, and uh, we made a four-part series about Mnuchin uh, and try to understand what his background uh, try to understand what happened with, is it One West? One West, yes. Yeah, it was One West. Yeah. Usually I can't remember names uh, with One West. Yeah. Um, and then in doing so, try and understand the establishment of the FDIC. And then prior to that, trying to understand, you know, uh, is it Glass-Steagall? Glass-Steagall. Yeah. yeah, that was repealed. Mm-hmm. Just trying to understand the background. How did like this crisis happen? So I've got a really interesting question for you. I don't know if you can answer this. Mm-hmm. But lots of people wanted to blame the financial crisis on different administrations. But it seemed to me the starting point of the part of this financial crisis was under Clinton, where he tried to make homes more affordable. And I can't remember if that is Glass-Steagall being repealed or there was something else repealed at the time. But in doing so, they lifted a number of the restrictions on banks Mm -hmm. to try to make them more affordable. So the deposits you had to have and things like that. Is that correct? So that's that's one start of making homes affordable to make mortgages more accessible to people that maybe couldn't get into homes. Yeah. Which on its face, I would argue, isn't wrong, right? Yeah, I would agree. You want to promote that. But the problem with Glass-Steagall, as it was held, what... You know, Sandy Weil of Citigroup is the one that really brought Glass-Steagall down because they had Citigroup, travelers, insurances, mixing the investment bankers with personal money. And that was a lesson they learned from the Great Depression. You know, this whole idea of the Glass-Steagall Act was to keep, when you have depositors' money in the bank, and let's say they're buying a stock in GE, you don't have an investment bank that's shorting GE stock or you're doing things against the interests of the depositors. Or even worse, as unfortunately we've now seen with Sam Bankman-Fried in our industry, taking depositors' money and doing investments in other industries. So the Glass-Steagall Act kept that separate. So that wall coming down, which was to try to promote more mortgages, right? Because if you bring the investment banking in, you're a larger institution, you do more mortgages, that's a good thing. But the problem is you're then going back to what caused the Great Depression, which is when you have an investment bank 
and then you have people's deposits, and there's not really a strong enough wall to defend that against it, which is a story as old as a time, because we're now seeing that in real life with Sam Bankman fried today. And, and that separation, why was that important? What, you, know, you say it's important to keep these things separate, but what is the kind of, what is the knock-on effect of commingling these? So, believe it or not, in the Great Depression, you might be going in to make a deposit at your bank, Peter, and you might see your banker come out on the street holding up a bond for a company, trying to sell that bond in the street. Hey, you should buy some bonds. And what you realize is happening is they're trying to keep the bank afloat because they're trying to sell the bonds of one of its companies. Huh. And so there's this, this notion of before the FDIC of people always knew your deposits weren't safe if the bank collapsed. There's always that risk that you could lose the deposits. And up until the Great Depression, there was never really enough of a public outcry of people wanting the government to somehow protect that for them. So by, by getting rid of that, by, by separating it out, it allowed for a time, which I know some people disagree because they consider it a moral hazard, uh, but having an FDIC insurance plan where you know your bank fails, you run to the bank, you're not lost. You don't have all your life savings erupted. You can get that, that money back. Okay, and the FDIC, that's some, the federal something insurance something? Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Okay, yeah. uh, <laughs> that is up to, is it up to $250,000 a person? It's now 250000 yes. But it wasn't before? No, it was 100000 In fact, um, when we get to the one West, which is interesting that you mentioned it, that was IndyMac Bank. Yes. And I brought a couple of videos to show you the crisis in real live action in 2008 that helps explain a little bit of what was happening and how much of a panic was really started in July of 2008. You got those? We'll come back to those. Just, sure. just a couple of things. So where does the money for the FDIC come from? Is that, do, people, do the banks pay into it? Now I might get in trouble. So, <laughs> yes, the, the FDIC is an agency, um, and they have what's called the deposit insurance fund. Uh, this is this is how much money they have because the banks all have to pay assessments into the fund, and so they do have this money. It sits at account in U.S. Treasury. So technically, the FDIC would have to call the U.S. Treasury to say, "Hey, we we need to use some of this money." Treasury would never say no, but. Technically, the Treasury could say, I'm not, because Treasury is a bank too. They could say, well, no, we need the money. We're a different agency. Um, but that all sits in a deposit insurance fund. The deposit insurance fund does not cover everyone's deposits nationwide, right? It covers maybe 1%. It's supposed to be a certain percentage of the overall deposits. And the theory of that is that they have, if they can just have enough in case there's a couple of bank failures, they can cover it, but it does not cover 100%. So the FDIC if they run out of money, would have to then go to Congress to get more money from the taxpayers to pay off those further accounts. And we see that. We have individual banks mm -hmm. getting into tricky situations. Uh, I'm trying to remember the one. We had one in the UK at one point. Um, Newcastle Bank, I seem to remember. Was it Newcastle Building State? No, uh, I can't remember its name. Um, but anyway, that, that once happened. And in those scenarios, you have that protection. Northern Rock. Uh, Northern Rock, yeah. Do you remember that? They used to sponsor Newcastle. Yeah, so there were suspicions about them. Then there was a run on the bank, mm. and they didn't have the liquidity, and they ended up crashing. Now, we have something similar in the UK. I think you're protected up to £85,000 in your deposit account, right. your savings account, or current account, as we call it. But... The systemic problems that happened, like in 2008, that's when the, the government comes in and you know, bails people out. Uh, one thing I never understood, 
how do they pick who to save? Because <laughs> they saved Fannie Mae and Fannie Mac. Uh, Freddie, Freddie Mae and Fannie Mac? Or is it the other way around? They saved Fannie and Freddie. Yeah. But, yeah. but, but they didn't save uh, Lehman. Yeah. How do, and they saved Bear Stearns. Yeah. How they, are those decisions They didn't made? save Lehman on Monday. Yeah. And on Tuesday, they saved AIG. How are those decisions made? They flip a coin. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's so when it depends on the case and the circumstance. A lot of people will say Lehman was a huge, massive mistake that had they not let Lehman Brothers failed, that the crisis really wouldn't have gotten that bad. That just to me is not true. Like there was problems. And at that point, it wasn't just Lehman. It was all of them, like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. They all could have gotten down. But they realized they needed to send a message to the people at Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, all the investment bankers that the government isn't always going to be a safety net for you. Fair. So because they had Bear Stearns in March, they didn't want to repeat that with Lehman. Okay. AIG was a totally different subject. And I still have nightmares about AIG because we literally learned about all the counterparty risk of AIG once we knew they were about to fail. And we realized they held the insurance for all of the investment banks. And so my job was, I was actually on a whiteboard looking at all the different countries we were exposed to, the amount of notional derivatives that were out there, which, you know, we now know and, and is visible, but like, you know, we had money owed to like different foreign countries that I don't want to go into which, but it was obvious to me just looking at this that, Peter, if we didn't save AIG, like, there'd be missiles launched at the U.S. Like, people would be really upset with us. So that's why then... I mean, that's a bold statement. Well, uh, to the degree of the default of, of, of bonds from America or, or what would happen as a result, uh, it, yes, it is a bold statement. Um, but when you look at the, the, the consequence that would cause to another nation right. with our debt, I mean... The United States is founded with Alexander Hamilton saying the U.S. has to be good about its debt. You know, so I think that's where I'm saying that. But needless to say, it was all around the world. It was definitely globally exposed. So ultimately, they came in and they said, we have to bail out AIG, which again, I say is on Tuesday, the yeah. day after they said, we don't do bailouts. We're not saving Lehman Brothers. In fact, George Bush... Um, was very upset because he had to speak at the National Economic Club. And in his speech, he was going to say, we don't do any more bailouts. But then he had to change it because AIG had just been bailed out. Uh, and when this all happened, was it like a buildup of suspicion or rumors? Or did you just come into work one day and it was like a shit show? So uh, I, it was very quiet. But we did know about IndyMac Bank, which is why I'm excited to share with your listeners a little bit about what's, I think, a little bit underreported, but speaks a lot to people's lack of confidence in the banking system. But there was definitely this large bank, and, but at the time, the FDIC fund was very large. So we knew even if this bank failed, we'd be okay. But we started getting murmurs in of things like Washington Mutual, Wachovia. So it was all building up, but the crisis didn't really hit until July. And then it just felt like the walls were going to fall apart because it, it, things were getting so turned around, particularly with Lehman Brothers, uh -huh. like with breaking the buck on a, on a U.S. dollar. I mean, you just felt like it, was, it could just collapse the entire financial system. So okay. it was very, it was, it was scary. I mean. Yes, very scary. Was there also like a weird excitement to working on it, knowing you're part of potentially the solution? And I don't mean that in a kind of like uh, derogatory way about what actually happened, like it was terrible. Mm -hmm. But like you're central to part of this. You're coming into work as somebody to help try and fix 
this? Was there like an excitement to it? And also, were you like working all God's hours on this? Yeah, I was, I was working a ton of time on it. And the shift really was that it was, it was interesting. I had experiences I never thought I would have with it. Um, but I also realized that like this, it called for regulators to have some curiosity and come up with some clever ways to figure things out. I was a, not that this is an excuse, but I was like a junior analyst. I was like the people that they would come to to ask what the quotes were on the Bloomberg screen. So I kind of had the, the joy of analyzing it all, but not really having to make the hard, big decisions. Are you the dude in margin call? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, it's like, uh, you know, um, uh, scrubs. You know, I was like the guy who was like, they come over, what's the TED spread? Well, it's inverted, you know, and never saw that happen. And um, so, so, but yes, the, it, there was definitely an excitement. When I left after a year, and I, I was actually looking at maybe getting a couple of other jobs before I left the FDIC. I was telling people about it, and they said, boy, you know, you've had 20 years of experience in that eight months of things like people would love to just have been part of one of those projects. So, yeah, and it was it was on totally uncharted territory. Yeah, and you know what? I, I see the kind of similarities between what's happening in like these crypto markets where essentially over-leverage uh, people lending money to each other, everybody kind of like interlinked and you get the first one, the second one, and boom, everything collapsed like, yeah. in pretty quick time. Was that, do, you, do you see that as like, excuse the word crypto, but cryptos, because it did involve other cryptocurrencies. Was this like cryptos 2008? It, it absolutely was. I mean, because the, the same things were being discussed that's being discussed now. The fight between, you know, like Gemini and DCG. I mean, you had... Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, there was all interconnections. They all lent money to each other. It just the difference was that they were backed by the government. The government needed them as a utility to exist. In this case, you know, the government's like, you know, good luck, guys. <laughs> Go figure it out amongst yourselves. And, you know, maybe people think that's like the way the free market works. But um, I do really worry about that. My, my big thing is about there has to be consumer protection. I don't think for crypto there's been enough consumer protection. Like I was saying before, I worked for the Home Affordable Modification Program, so I be, believe everyone really de you know, deserves a fair shake. And what, what has me really upset right now is, is a lot of the things with Celsius, because, you know, with Mashinsky winning the right over the customer accounts. Insane. That's just not the way it's ever, ever supposed to work. Yeah. Those people should be paid first, and that should be the priority, including those at Celsius. So Yeah. Uh, this will be an interesting conversation, because um, uh, I, I don't fit in well with the more anarchist Bitcoiners. Mm -hmm. um, uh, mm. I do... There's certain aspects of consumer protection or regulation I agree with. Not everything. I think we've had massive scope creep. But there are certain areas I do agree with. Um, so we will get into that. Um, should we watch your videos? Yeah, and if I could set the stage for yeah. it. So this is the first big explosion when things got interesting and exciting. You know, um, Essentially... Um, the, the IndyMac Bank, which became One West Bank later, but at the time, it was early July, and the bank was closed. It was closed a few hours early on July 11th, and it was reopened on Monday, July 14th. And what you're about to see are news reports of what was a bank run that really is, to me, a little bit underreported, but what really sparked the financial crisis and broke what a lot of people's faith was in banking. And what's interesting about what you're going to see is how the people are upset, they are actually getting wrong information from the FDIC. It's incorrect because the FDIC was telling them to go home. You have access to all your funds and you have people saying that's not true. We, we can't actually get our money and we need to pay, 
pay bills. But then when you really talk to people, they said, well, what's behind the dollar? Like, what's, what about your faith in the banking system? And they basically said, well, as long as the FDIC is there. And that's when I kind of had this introspective look like, whoa, <laughs> we're not gold. We're not some, you know, this is, this is an agency. And that's how much people rely on the FDIC. And it's just been that way since the Great Depression. So you'll, you'll right. see in the... You know that IndyMac Bank shut down Friday and has been taken over by federal regulators and they have reopened the bank. What is happening at this hour there, Eric? Well, this particular branch and all of them actually open at, uh, opens at 8 o'clock this morning and there's a little bit of tension here. We got people in line here behind this yellow tape. These are people who were put on a list yesterday. They waited all day yesterday and their names were put on a list. They were told to come back this morning and then these people showed up over here and they were not on the list and they feel they should be allowed in the bank first to go in and withdraw their money and of course the people whose names are on the list they believe they should be allowed in first so there's an argument taking place here and uh it's gotten kind of loud and the police have been called in you see there's a couple of officers over there there's security here as well at this point what the bank is telling people is if your name is on the list you can get in if it isn't you need to go home. You come over here to this uh, this manager. He is telling these people whose names were not on the list that they ought to go home. One of the things I want to do is get you guys a handout with all the questions and answers from the FDIC. If you have questions on your account, we'll have the FDIC come back through the line and answer questions. Maybe you don't have to be here today. Maybe you can come back in another day. The bank will stay open and you won't have to wait in this line. Some of these people are not happy. So this is this is a federal bank. So in other words, this is now owned by the FDIC. So it's not it's no longer a private bank. So at that point, they at this point, yeah. So what was the trigger for that? So the trigger on the eleventh was they went bankrupt. They the FDIC closed them down, saying they were no longer a solvent bank on Friday. So now this is like Monday or Tuesday, and they're trying to reopen the bank. But over the weekend. And you'll see like the people's reactions. They, they're trying to get at their money and the FDIC saying, go home because y- your money's fine. It's, it's, it's okay in the bank, but people like couldn't access their debit cards. They couldn't pay bills. And they were trying to understand what was happening. So a couple of questions on yeah. that. Um, you say they were given wrong information. Mm-hmm. Could they be given wrong information on purpose? Just, well, that's why if we, when we re- okay. replay this video, you'll see, the, the news anchor gets involved because he's hearing what the FDIC is saying and he interrupts the broadcast. Say, wait a minute, I'm a customer of IndyMac Bank. I know what the FDIC isn't tr- is saying is not true. I didn't have access okay. over the weekend. Okay. And that's where it got really messy. Some of these people are not happy with that uh, explanation. They're, they're here. Some of these people have been here since 1.45 a.m. Let's come on down the line, maybe talk to a few of them. You've been waiting here for hours. Now they're telling you you have to go home because your name's not on the list. What? That's what they're saying. Well, let me get on another list then. I mean, that's nonsense. This morning, uh, the FDIC announced through the news they weren't honoring anybody on this list. It was first come, first serve. They know nothing about this list. It wasn't from them on their official letterhead. Now the same guy who said, I'm not doing a list, is now saying, I'm honoring a list. He's a hypocrite. And he's a bold-faced liar. And this is who's representing us and in charge of our money today? That's nonsense. There are people here who need money to pay their bills. This is nonsense. They should alternate one, 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 one. They should not take the list people first. It should be an alternated thing. 
I mean, there's one guy that's been here since 11.30 last night. I've been here since 5.30 this morning. I mean, they should have at least had the decency to have a representative out here early and not wait till a quarter to eight to start doing this. This is badly managed, and apparently, according to the new CEO of this lovely IndyMac bank, he was going to make everything run smoother and do what was ever necessary. Well, he ought to get off his ass and come out here. Go on, go. Thank you for talking to us. I know you were angry, too. You were very upset. Are you going to stay here? They told you to go home. What are you going to do? I, I didn't hear somebody telling me to go home, but uh, I guess this guy is not telling the truth. Because we were standing here yesterday for five hours, and he said, go home. You have another week. You don't have to panic. You're not going to get in. I was standing. I was in the five hours, and I was almost right here on the line. He said, we're not going to make a list. We're not going to have tickets. We're not going to have number." And I came this morning, and now he's telling me that they, they made a list after I left. I don't know how fair it is. Yeah, there's a lot of people upset. Yeah, go ahead. Frank. Hey, uh, I wonder if you could get some of these folks or ask one of them to react to what the president is saying. The president just talking, trying to reassure everyone about the banking system in America. He says it's basically sound. He's asking people, Americans, to take a deep breath in terms of their assessment of the banking system. What do those folks there in the line feel about that? Well, we could try that. I think most of these folks just want to get their money out of this institution as quickly as they can. But let me come over here and talk to you. The president just gave a news conference just a few seconds ago in which he's telling people to calm down. He's reassuring people about our banking system. Well, how do you respond to that? I'm pretty pissed off right now because I got here at 4 o'clock in the morning. Now they're telling me I can't go in. Um, I'm just aggravated. They, they should have this more organized than they do. Uh, what, what about your faith in our system of banking? Has that been lost? Well, as long as we have FDIC, as long as FDIC doesn't go broke, we're fine. But what do they do when that happens? You know, two, two or three more bank runs, I don't think anyone's going to have very much confidence. What if you get your money out of the bank and you're able to withdraw it today? Where will you put it? As long, uh, anywhere where they, as long as it's FDIC. They should have someone out here from the FDIC, actually. You see what's going on here, Frank. Aaron, up, go ahead. If I could also jump in, because my wife and I are customers of IndyMac, so we're caught up in the middle of this. Uh, and and as you're saying, and it's just this disinformation, because the bank people have told you that the banking machines were working all weekend. That is not true. Oh, really? Yeah. We went there on Friday. We managed to pull out $200, but it wouldn't. The main thing is we wanted to know what our balance was. And it won't tell your balance. Then we went back on Saturday and Sunday. The machine wouldn't allow us to pull out any money. It won't even tell your balance. You go on the Internet and you can't find your balance. If you go on the FDIC website, they just have that standard, you know, don't worry. We'll, you know, and that. So I, I can't even without having to walk into that bank. So the machines weren't operating in that. So it's that disinformation that they're creating even more of a problem because, you know, you, you know, and we're, we're going to, you know, my wife and I have to work. We can't line up. But we're hoping. Yeah. And Eric, the person there was just saying that there isn't a representative from FDIC there. I mean, I've got notes from yeah, that. What, what do you think? Well, firstly, what? I mean, look, it's palpable how upset that lady is. You could see the fear. Because there's two parts to this. It's like, if your only way to access money is the bank, and there's two aspects of that. There's the automatic payment of bills. that doesn't happen. So you risk defaulting on loans mortgages, potentially lose your house. So there's that. Also, if you need to do your shopping and feed your kids and you cannot withdraw money and you're in a position, like there's plenty of times where I don't have cash and I entirely rely on my bank card, so I cannot pay for anything. The third thing is the fear that you 
lose all your money. Now, one of those guys is educated. He's FDIC insured, so he thinks he'll get his money. That's cool up to, was it $100,000 then? It was $100,000 then, yeah. They moved yeah. it to 250 after this because, you, because of that. But you could be somebody who has a million dollars with them. And great, you deserve that because you earned that million dollars or somebody earned that million dollars. gave. You. I don't care how you got that. It's still your fucking money. Mm-hmm. That, you'd be panicking because you know you're only getting 100000 back. You've lost 90% of your savings there. So, yeah, I mean, that's bad. Secondly, it's obviously chaotic. You know, it's almost like the FDIC knew the protection they're going to give to people, but they didn't know how they were going to actually run that scenario. Exactly. And I think that's the one thing that no one expected. There were the wild card in this is the YouTube videos. So you saw that was a broadcast, but yeah. what was happening was, and I did this because I was the one that actually helped set up the spreadsheet for the board of directors at the FDIC and EMAC bank. So I was back in DC as an analyst, just putting it together to show how the, who was taking out the money. Right. So early on, the people that were lining up and taking out the money were mainly people who had lived through the Great Depression. And, and so that made sense. And so we were like, well, yeah, they realize what's happening, even though the FDIC is there. They remember maybe their grandparents lived through suddenly having no money, you know. And so but what was happening was there were these kids like kids, 18, 20 year olds who were going around YouTubing it. So this was a social media crisis because then people who just had normal jobs working in their 20s, 30s and 40s saw the YouTube videos and started running to the bank because they thought, well, if those people are standing online, maybe I should be doing the same thing. So this is really the first social media inspired kind of bank run. And really your only access was in those doors where they could maybe tell you a little bit about your account. Otherwise, you're just totally shut off. It's, it's a, and, and thank you for saying that, because, and that's what I care about with the consumer protection side, because one day you have money and you're relying on that, and then just like that, the snap of a finger, it's gone. It's scary. This show is brought to you by BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, fast withdrawals, and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, please head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up today, we have Ledin. And from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Now, Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only is a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer. I've been using Ledin since they became a sponsor, and I absolutely love the service. Now, if you want to find out more about this, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also, today we have Ledger. And now with everything that's happened in Bitcoin over the last few months, it again highlighted the importance of self-custody and why Ledger is such an important company for the industry. Now, I have been using a Ledger Nano S since 2017, since when I got back into Bitcoin. And I'm still using that same Ledger Nano S now. I've still got it. I literally got it here set with me right now. 
Now, with Ledger, you have industry-leading security built into the Ledger device. And also, they have got a new device coming soon. It's called a Stax. It's totally awesome. I've pre-ordered mine. But the Ledger Nano S has been the leading hardware device for people to store their Bitcoin for years now. Now, if you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Yeah, but I can, I can also recognize the alternative argument for this in that um, you as an individual can be responsible for your own money. You, can, you are a customer of the bank. Okay, mm-hmm. So with a bank, you're the customer. You leave your money with them. Maybe it's up to you to... I mean, we had it during when FTX collapsed. Like, there are funds who kept the majority of their money in FTX, mm-hmm. and they hadn't implemented proper counterparty risk, and they're fucked. Here, maybe consumer protection makes us a little bit relaxed to our own counterparty risk. I don't, I don't, I, I, I see agree. both sides of the, sadly, in doing this job, it's important to try and see both sides of the argument. So I do. So I'd like sometimes struggle to take a direct position. But I actually, what it's making me more think is that I think a lot of people... So my son right now has a bank account. Um, I imagine that he wouldn't even consider a scenario like this mm-hmm. because in 2008, he was four. Right. And I can tell him about this, but he was four. And there have been people there who were like 20, 25, 30, 40, hadn't, like you mentioned, hadn't lived through the Great Depression. Right. And you think your money in a bank is safe. You think it's always there. What you don't realize in the background, they're doing jiggery-pokery. Do you know that term? No. It's a British term. Fuckery with your money. Ah, Financial engineering, (laughs) trying to make a lot more money. And in doing so, they wipe out their, their own liquidity, wipe out their own bank. And then wipe out your funds. They are gambling your, they're gambling your money. They're taking your money and gambling and ruining your life. And I don't think enough people know the risks that come from these banks. I don't know the answers. I'm sure you've got ideas or answers, but I, I, I don't know the exact answers. It's almost like we talk about proof of reserves in Bitcoin world. I kind of want proof of reserves from my bank. But then I know they're not going to have the reserves because it's all fractional reserve lending anyway. Is that the Federal Reserve? Yeah. Crazy shit, man. Yeah. I, and I think for, for the, the bank at the time, the idea was that, you know, there's a thing at the FDIC called the least cost test. So you have to analyze what's going to be the least cost to the deposit insurance fund so you don't, don't end up using taxpayer money. So this was, this, what you saw, was considered a colossal failure on all parts. I mean, you can hear it. Believe me, after this, there were a lot of people on planes going out from the FDIC to be in those lines. Like, there were a lot of lessons learned. But the one lesson, and, and what really interested me, was the degree of attention to which they were all paying to how many YouTube videos the FDIC would then put out to reassure everybody and make them comfortable and understand, educate them, right? Um, and I think that... After that, you saw, you know, the TARP package, which, you know, TARP is, you know, Trouble Asset Relief Program, which I always make fun of the title because they just said that to get as much money as they could from Congress to put, you know, in the banks, which they ended up doing. But it's like Trouble Asset Relief. It's like, is it homeless relief? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big house worth a million dollars. Somebody couldn't afford it. Now they're being kicked out of it. That's your relief program. But it wasn't even for that person. It ended up being just an injection into the banks is the, the stuff 
it gets complicated. It's kind of like with a doctor when they start to use these terms and you don't quite know what they're saying, but you know, it has to do with your health. And, and, and like when you have Lynn Alden on a lot, I, I love Lynn Alden. I understand everything she's talking about having done the capital market stuff, but sometimes it doesn't hit people until you see something like that, you know, because then it's like real, like we're always talking about the federal reserve and what they're doing, which is a thousand times worse than this. You know, it's like, it's, it's like they're bleeding our money supply. They're doing all these things, but people don't see those effects, the direct effects. And at least in this instance, there was that direct effect. But then with the TARP money, they just gave money. So like the bigger banks like Wells Fargo could buy failing Wachovia and others. Because when you think about it from a psychological perspective, if I told you on Friday, Peter, hey, you and your son's account, they're at this new federal bank, you'd probably spend the whole weekend trying to figure out what your balance is. You need to be there at two in the morning, try to talk to somebody about it. But if I told you, hey, Peter, you had your account in this mid-sized bank, but Wells Fargo bought it. You'd be like, okay, I'll go down on Monday. You know, it reduced the stress. So it, and in a sense, calm people because, and this is where my sort of eye-opening experience kind of came to me and why I'm, it's exciting to see this whole Bitcoin community now because I can kind of share this because at the time I was almost like talking to myself because I was like, there's a real problem here. Because if people don't trust what the FDIC was saying, and that's why it came down to how important it was that the FDIC put out YouTube videos, then what would people do? Like, do we just print money? Because the FDIC only has 1% of everyone's deposits. It's like you said, proof of reserves. What if we did the, what is it, the keys test? You know, everyone takes their money out of the exchange. Everyone take your money out of the bank for one day. I mean, there's just- It would never work. Right, right. It, there wouldn't be enough there. What do you think, Danny? If you stopped at the street and asked 100 people what fractional reserve lending is, how many do you think would know? Oh, I don't know, but not enough. I think less than 10, maybe less than five. Mm. Yeah. I might even ask my friends when I'm back. I don't think they realize how, how it works. Yeah. And that's, and that's my, own, my thought when I hear you and Lynn talking is like, are people digesting this? You know, because I can show you a video, right? And you can say, oh, yeah, can't pay your bills. You know, and, and in all fairness, I know you're talking about people doing counterparty risk evaluations as the yeah. customers, but most of the FTX money was the large money that left first. The people... The bag holders were really the smaller account holders. As always, in every scenario that, of these things, it's always the little people who get fucked. Yeah. Every single time. That's why I brought it on this show so many times. That's why I think The Big Short was such a brilliant movie. It made, it explained everything in a way one you could understand, and it was entertaining. And just when you think you're about to leave entertained, they have that final montage. You see the family pack up their car, They've lost their house, they move away, and you just go, oh, mm -hmm. fuck. And you realize, and then I think, does it come up with the numbers, the stats at the end, how many people lost their homes? And it really hits you, and you're like, shit. Yeah. And then they start doing the same thing all over again on Wall Street. Yeah. yeah. Oh. And there's the one banker that went to prison, the Credit Suisse guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, man. It's, um, it's depressing. Um, what, what, what was Dodd-Frank? So Dodd-Frank was um, uh, regulations to avoid what happened with the global financial crisis. So th that was the thing that came after, after mm -hmm. and that was, uh, whatever it was, seven, 12 things where it's the stress test on the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is it annual they have to do those? Annual, yes. If they're a systemically important financial institution. Uh, my understanding is actually not bad regulation. It's been good for testing. Like, It's been good for testing. It, it, it's a very comprehensive process. Um, sometimes the stress test from the bank will be 
remember one time it was over 100,000 pages. So, I mean, you know, how many, how can you get through 100,000 yeah. pages in a, in a month, you know, but you have to get through it to kind of figure out what the, the rating is. But I think that was good. But, you know, to me, though, that's where we now see a further centralization of banking. Because like I was saying, the TARP money just gave money to the larger banks to gobble up the smaller banks that were going to fail. So there's this trend toward much fewer financial institutions. So this, this is all a huge centralization problem. I mean, crypto, you know, all Gemini, all that, that's nothing. This is huge banks and, it's, and they know it's getting smaller every year. There used to be regional community banks, but that's all going away now. So with uh, IndyMac... Were there large withdrawals before the failure? Like if you work at the bank, you can't like high up enough, you're, you know what's coming. Mm -hmm. It's like that uh, mar uh, margin call moment where they realize they're like, well, let's sell this shit off. Mm -hmm. Do we know were there large withdrawals, people working there? Do we know if that happened? I, I don't know if that happened. Um, it's funny you say that because I've been part of like, helping close banks a few times. And it's kind of funny because they give you a cover story of like who you're supposed to be. And, and the joke is like a bank never wants to see the FDIC on a Friday because that means they're getting closed. And they get closed at like two o'clock on a Friday. Mm -hmm. But I remember I was on a plane and I was supposed to be this consultant for like ABC consulting. But the guy next to me at the plane was like a New York life salesman. So he was like pitching me and he wanted to know more about my life. And I'm like, well, I do this consulting. But he asked like more questions than my background had. And I think he ultimately decided I was like full of shit. But I was just like, you know, but the idea was you can't, like people from the FDIC would get in trouble. You couldn't tweet about where you were going. Of course. There's, you have to go in there. And, um, and, and so, you know, the, the idea is no one at the bank, no one, no depositors at the bank should know. What about large counterparty risks? Where, the, like we say, there's 100,000 protection. Could there be somebody with 10, 20, 50 million at a bank and it's just gone? Apart yeah. from 100,000. So, so I want it, to, it's not, it's not technically that it's just gone. What they try to do and they try to do with IndyMac, and that's where it became One West, is they went to sell it. So they sold it to Mnuchin. So the government benefited because they got money. So maybe let's say you're one of those people that had a million dollars. Maybe of the 900,000, they're able to recover 250,000 of it. Fine. So they, they, they kind of, you know, they do that just like as if you had stock in a company. So they kind of break it off and their, their hope is to sell it. Right. So you... you understand enough about the banking system to distrust it enough to understand enough about Bitcoin to realize the concepts of Bitcoin are better. Self-custody. Yeah. No counterparty risk. Hold your own keys. And, and, and I want to say, Peter, like in terms of the crypto and the crypto mess we're seeing now, a, a lot of what I hear sometimes is that if we got better regulation or if there was a regulator overseeing like what Sam Bankman-Fried was doing, that that would have, you know, solved the problem. We would have these great... I don't, I don't know that that's totally true. Danny questions that too. Well, I'll tell you. So the IndyMac, the one we're looking at now, so the, 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 um, the Western regulator for the Office of Thrift Supervision, which is the regulator at the time, it was found out later on March 31st of 2018 that IndyMac was bankrupt. They should have been shut down. But instead, right before they filed their SEC filing where they've had to admit it, their regulator let them backdate an infusion of capital from their holding company. Yeah, in early May, like 15 million, whatever it was, I don't remember the amount, they were $32 billion institution to show that they were solvent on March 31st. And that was a federal regulator. It was somebody, you know, like me kind of from, but, and he was fired. And eventually the Office of Thrift Supervision was 
shut down. They consolidated with the OCC because that's how bad of a mistake it is. But think about the trust. Like, I don't put it by a guy like Sam Bankman-Fried to maybe talk to a regulator into doing something like that. But I mean, yeah, it's out there. It's a, it was a whole investigation. It's not often talked about, but that's with a regulator that's supposed to be washing over. And think about what that regulator did as far as damage to those people. Fuck yeah. Because had they done it in March, instead of letting it bleed out to July, that's how many more people opened up accounts at IndyMac and then lost their money. So regulation is helpful, but it's not perfect. Like you're saying, with, there's a balance to it. But we still have similar risks now. We're the same risks now. Is it the same? Because if you say we've got the... Ex- we still got the same risk in that we have risks to our money. But I, my assumption is the risks are different because yeah, there is certain protection with Dodd-Frank in terms of stress testing to yes. try and prevent certain scenarios. Also, we don't have the same financial engineering around the housing market. So we don't have that same bubble. So we still have risk. But I, it feels like it's not the same level of risk. That's correct. You could disagree I, with me. No, no, I, 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 I give you that there, the Dodd-Frank has, been, has made things in a way where we're trying to get back to the Glass-Steagall moment. You know, we had it. Yeah. My worry with Dodd-Frank is that could be watered down or changed, you know. And look, the, the FDAC, OCC, and Federal Reserve people, I mean, they're all you know, super smart, and I'm sure they do the best job they can with those, you know, reviews. Um, the, the question is, like, if it's systemically important, what they're really trying to figure out is, is there a will to like wind it down in a safe and sound manner? And I don't know that there is because what we learned in 2008 is that the mob, the people, like as you see, when, when certain things get hold, it's very hard. And I just don't know if, if psychologically we're there yet where we say, well, there wouldn't be a bank run because people would understand. Because I think most people don't understand the, what you're just saying now, like, oh, well, the systemic risk <laughs> test, they, they don't understand that any more than they do, you know, the Federal Reserve stuff and, and fractional reserve banking. People just want their money. Danny, can you fact check me? Can you look up if Donald Trump tried to repeal Dodd-Frank? Because I'm sure he did. Sure he did. Same bill rolling back some of Dodd-Frank regulation. Yeah, so some of it he did. Mm -hmm. And I would question whether that's because um, he felt it was too restrictive or is that uncomfortable connection between the White House and Wall Street? I think he was trying to help Wall Street or just help banks get back to a point where there's less regulation in general. That's yeah. always sort of a. I mean, the, the Republicans tend to be deregulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and which in certain scenarios I would agree, in certain ones I, I would disagree. Yeah. Um, interesting. So, so, can do you th- believe there is a uh, banking sector we can build that is more trustworthy, which isn't a cryptocurrency, which is within the current system? I, I think so. I, I, I think it would kind of go a little bit against the idea of that we rely on Dodd-Frank and the stress tests because I think these banks are getting like quote unquote too big to fail. Like they're too large. So just yeah. any one of them, whenever you have that kind of power and authority and, and it, it creates a danger. So I'd like to see it more decentralized. So I, I think, and, and I hate to say, you know, like limits on the size of bank, but at this point, banks are like a utility. Right, so it's like AT and T got broken up at one point to different phone companies, smaller. I think that could be a way around it. What I think people lost trust in was what happened with the TARP money and the you know seven hundred billion dollars because that was supposed to go to the people, but then it just went right to the banks. Is we've created this idea. I mean, that's how Occupy Wall Street got you know kicked off. Isn't it mad though? There was 
wasn't the whole thing like 800 billion to rescue the sector and and they do like a 1.7 trillion infrastructure like the money now the 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 scale of money now which has been printed compared to then 800 billion doesn't seem too bad oh you saved the whole sector for 800 billion Oh, but now we're printing 1.7 billion for bridges. I, I mean, don't think they even used all the 800 billion, did they? It's insane, really. I, and, and no, some of them didn't. But what's even crazier is you can hear the Treasury Secretary at the time, Hank Paulson, comment on it about why he asked for that amount of money. And you know, what he says is, he goes, well, we couldn't ask for a trillion because that would be too much. <laughs> and we didn't really want to start with too low of a number, but we wanted to get as much money as we could. So... We thought about 500 billion, but we thought, eh, let's say 700 billion. This is really his thinking. And he goes, because if we say like 700 billion, most people don't know the difference between 500 billion and 700 billion. What's a couple hundred more billion dollars? And that's how, they, that's how they did it. Like just kind of like buying a car, right? Just, just under a trillion, kind of. I mean, <laughs> the whole thing is insane. Uh, it's insane to look back at some of this stuff, uh, to live through it. I, I bought a house in June of 2008. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, I know. I but, but you didn't know. I mean, you didn't. I mean, it, that's what, it, you know, it was a housing crisis, you know, and there was gamblers, people taking the mortgages and selling them and became a house of cards. I mean, so that, you know, that's, that's why I have a lot of empathy for the consumer protection side. But it makes me think of that Alan Farrington tweet again, you know, where it's like money, goes into the financial system, and then there's all these squiggly lines oh, yeah. that says financial engineering and collapse afterwards or something. Yeah. Um, okay, should we watch the second video? Or oh, is there anything else you want to cover on that? Um, no, 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 yeah, we can watch the second video. It's, it's a good sort of explanation of what they decided to do with IndyMac, and it shows the person who was the CEO from the FDIC at the time. So it's just a few minutes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, they got the water. Right, right. The water for customers in bold, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, people don't need to wait in line. Um, 95 to 98% of the customers of this bank had less than $100,000 in the bank, and they are fully insured. They can take their money out if they want. It's some other day, but they're in long lines waiting today and, and they can do it some other time. I got the total amount. I was very pleased and I have tremendous confidence in FDIC. It's just, it was a very pleasant experience. I feel quite sad for the people that work here at IndyMac and uh, it's a very sad day for them. I feel comfortable enough because it is it's insured. So, you know, you take it out and put it somewhere else, the same thing could happen. Our plan would be to market the institution to try to sell it in its entirety to another healthy bank. And if that it turns out not to be possible, then we would sell pieces of the organization. We would like, as in a, within the upcoming months, uh, to return it to the private sector. Okay. Thank you for indulging me with that. Peter, I think that, first of all, if you think about what the last thing that was said in that video for a moment, mm -hmm. you're saying to all these people on a hot day in Los Angeles, to A, just go home, and B, this bank is perfectly safe. 
But as soon as we can sell it, we're going to try to. And if we can't, we'll start sell piecing pieces of the institution. Like that did not create the kind of confidence you want. And mm. right. I mean, it, it really, it, it, that, that, that to me is an example, really why a lot of people think the government shouldn't really run things, but, but in all fairness to him and in general, like no one had any training on how to run a bank, right? Mm. We're the examiners, we're the regulators. So it was really uncharted waters. Yeah. And, 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 and I think that for me, this created the break in what we trust and allowed the idea of Bitcoin to kind of flourish. That to me is what's interesting. Just having lived that, that's what I want to share with people. Why, why did they raise the interest to 250000 Was it just complaints from people who lost so much or is it the people who get to make that decision are the ones who wanted, who'd lost that much? <laughs> They're the kind of people with 250000 in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of people, a lot of you know, wealthy folks will have two hundred fifty in a variety of different institutions yeah. or use a broker to do that. So it's all protected, but um, it was overdue. It should have been raised. It had gone from ten thousand to one hundred thousand a long time ago. I don't remember the date, but then it went from one hundred to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, mainly after this, but also to kind of account for inflation. Yeah, you know, make sure it's an appropriate amount. That FDIC insurance. How did that relate to mortgages? Because their people lost their houses as well. Mm-hmm. But I can't remember the detail. I know we studied this in this Mnuchin thing, but we made that like three years ago. ago. Yeah. yeah, I can't remember the detail, but there were people who lost their houses. Mm-hmm. How did the insurance relate to that? So it, it doesn't. It's okay. not connected. What's connected, though, is that Steve Mnuchin went to the FDIC, bought this bank, right, that became One West Bank. Yeah. There are questions about the fairness of that dealing or whatever. But he went and bought the bank, and what they did was they... so. Where the FDIC does come in, wait, I stand corrected, is they agreed to share some of the potential losses in the mortgages in the portfolio of the bank that Steve Mnuchin bought. Yeah, didn't so he say he would only buy it if they covered part of that? Part of it, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, here's my home, Peter. Would you please buy it? I have this stinking bag of trash in the corner. You're like, well, I'll buy it, but... I'd like you to kind of go half with me on that stinking bag of trash because that could mean my whole investment turns out to be really lousy. I think some of the main criticisms of Mnuchin and the takeover is that they try to get a lot of mortgages off their books. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, there was that whole thing with the robo-signing where they were just like getting rid of customers and people were losing their homes. I remember that. I also remember, wasn't there a connection to Kamala Harris? She did investigate something she was meant to. I she, was she the AG? Was she the AG at the time? Let me have a look. I, I think that might be right. What what I think you'll note with that is th- that's actually why I went on to my sort of second thing af- and left the FDIC was to join Obama's efforts. And I, I don't think this matters. Like, I mean, I'm I'm a registered Democrat. I believe in Bitcoin. I, it's not about politics. It was about that you had these people who were losing their homes with the robo foreclosures and just getting it off the books. And the idea with the Home Affordable Modification Program was to at least give people an opportunity to either go get a 40-year mortgage at 2% or whatever it is. And I know that's even controversial. People are like, why should I pay for the mistake they made and took on a home they couldn't afford? But um, the the issues were, the the, I mean, think about it. Like, it's that, that point you talked about where you see the people at the end of the movie, the big short, getting yeah. their, leaving their home. But then you're leaving your home and you didn't have a seat at the table when it was foreclosed, right? It just happened automatically. And then the sheriff's showing up saying it's time to leave. Yeah. Hardworking people who want a home for their family, mm-hmm. 
lose it because of no fault but their own, but the greed of people who who created weird financial engineering because they got greedy and they fucked them. And it's always the small person gets fucked in two, well, multiple ways. I mean, we cover inflation. Always a small person gets fucked on inflation. Uh, even small amounts of inflation do that. But in these scenarios, it's usually the, the little guy who's got the least buffer to protect themselves in these scenarios. Like the smallest savings. Maybe they don't even have more than a month's savings. Maybe they've just done everything they can to get to a place where they can afford a home and they're foreclosed. How do they even get back to that point? It's always the little guy that gets fucked. And... It's always the arseholes who create this who get away with it. Like Danny said, one person went to jail. It's unbelievable to me that only one person went to jail. And, and with One West, they were known as being like ruthless, I think, in their foreclosures. They were and ruthless. There were foreclosure violations that Kamala Harris refused to prosecute Mnuchin on. Yes, this. And I th I'm pretty sure there's a connection back to donations to her. I'm yeah, pretty yeah. sure. I'd believe it. I mean, I think Kamala Harris is a piece of fucking shit. I always have. Um, you know, not just that. Um, you know, a treatment of dope smokers and you know, whatever. But uh, for me, this was, this was another sign of the elite doing what the elite wants. And I'm going to sound like the conspiracy theorist that, that I sometimes criticize. But, like, this was elite protection. Protect the elite's money. Protect the elite's actions. It's absolute scandal still to this day. Um, pisses me off. <laughs> Even with the, the TARP package, the $800 billion that was rightly sized, mm -hmm. so they would buy it. One piece of the package they wanted as part of the bill, Peter, was to keep their uh, Wall Street executive salaries at the same level. Like, n not to reduce it, but you can't increase it and you can't get bonuses. And you know what? That was a deal breaker. They had to take it out. So... <laughs> It's hard. To, it's hard in our system to, to punish the the the, the banks. The, the system. It's it's very hard. It's set up to be. It's not like I think it's Iceland where the, some of them did go to jail. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin. But again, I'm only buying right now. We're hodlers. We've seen the bottom of the market. We're seeing this through, right? Now, I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, it is Wasabi, who I am using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, with the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless, as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. You do also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There's also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there's no more change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking a lot more seriously recently, 
And with Wasabi 2.0, this is so much easier. So if you want to find out more about this, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Also today, we have Casa. Now, whether you've bought your first SATs or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person that should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin, it doesn't have to be difficult because Casa makes it super easy. And getting started is simple. Just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need assistance, it's only a phone call away. And Cars has the best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. And I have been using Casa. I've been using their multi-sig for two years now. I absolutely love it. Now, it is time for you to take financial freedom into your own hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Yeah, I mean, look, it, this is the kind of like argument against pure free markets in that in pure free markets, you will have all this weird financial engineering that you cannot get away with and people can get completely screwed again. And, you know, and I'm sure there's solid counter arguments to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think most people just want to go to work go home, heat their home, feed themselves, spend some time with their kids. And they've, they've got no control over all this craziness that's going on around them. That's the vast majority of people. I, I think it's a very small slither of society that is making greedy, awful decisions that impact other people more um, and they get away with it. Yeah, it fucking annoys me. It's a good why Bitcoin. It is, and, and it, it makes me think a little bit about like the deal with Sam Bankman-Fried right now too, because he's sort of acting like one of the elite, and that he's you know pleading not guilty, able to stay in this nice home, not yet like in jail. And the question is like, usually he's betting on people like him usually don't go to jail, right? Um, but the, the difference is though that it's crypto; it's not a major bank, so there's no there's not enough elite, I think, to protect him from the harm that might come, which would be simply prison time. I, I mean, I think he almost certainly has to go to jail if everything I've read is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he does. Uh, I, I think he's, he's basically the crypto Bernie Madoff, um, and he's affected people's lives. I know people who've been directly effective, affected in severe ways, and it's devastating for them. And again through no decision of their own, bad financial engineering, bad decision-making, bad management, bad policy, fraud, alleged fraud, but fraud, he's done very destructive things. So my, my question to you then is like, and this won't be popular with a segment of listeners, but you talk about consumer protection. What consumer protection can come to Bitcoin? Because consumer protection, the best consumer protection you can have is to hold your own keys. But that's kind of, it's kind of bullshit, really, because that protects your sats. But that doesn't protect your purchasing power while Bitcoin's not a unit of account. You know, we've all taken big losses this last year. Um, And there are fears that if Bitcoin and wider crypto keeps getting bigger, the kind of systemic failure we had this year could bleed into the rest of the economy. And that's feasible. I get it. Mm-hmm. So, so 
What do you think can be done? So uh, I'm a believer in consumer protection, mainly for the little guy. And I think that um, with Bitcoin right now, it's considered a digital commodity in the U.S. by the um, consumer financial, the CFTC, um, Commodities Futures Trading Commission. And, and so there's a lot of interest because Bitcoin is regulated there as to how some of these other coins might come over to be commodities that maybe went through an ICO or things like that. But here's the thing, Peter, the CFTC should actually be, I know they don't want to, but they should be defending Bitcoin against scams, things that try to impersonate Bitcoin. That's where the regulator needs to come in, just like you would if it was someone was taking advantage of the cow market or the orange, you know, orange juice market or anything like that. If, if somebody's trying to manipulate that market, you have a duty to protect that digital commodity from fraud and manipulation. And so, and I think between them and, and the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Trade Commission should be out there to one degree or another, because that's just when it's an outright scam, right? Mm. That, that's when you find they, the, they will come in and say, look, this is, you know, you're pretending to trade Bitcoin, but you're not actually doing it. You know, that's like their their role. So there is a role and a place for it. It's funny, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin lover, but like the first bill I tried to introduce in Congress and pushed for was a stablecoin bill. And like people are like, well, why are you focusing on stablecoins, Jason? Well, it was the stablecoin bill back in 2020. It was introduced by Representative Tlaib and Representative Lynch. I worked on it with a lot of the um, progressives. But I said, the problem here is people are thinking a stablecoin is like a U.S. dollar. And it's going to be a real problem if something that did come true, which is with Terra, happens. People won't understand that. Because they'll have dollars, right? They, they have $1,000 one day and then it's gone. And it's a little person that suddenly doesn't have that $1,000. That's a problem. Not the person, because Congress, if, you know, you bought five Bitcoin, like saying, hey, I'm down. Like, unfortunately, at least in America, you don't get a lot of people in Congress like, I'm really sorry for you, Peter. Like, what can we do to help? They're like, look, you took a chance on Bitcoin. It's volatile. But if you're offering something to say it's a representative of the U.S. dollar, my whole argument in the bill was just, we need to have a disclosure that's given to that person to recognize this is owned actually by a company. You know, it's not like a US dollar in the banking system. So just be aware if that company goes bankrupt, you may not have your stable coins anymore. It was very unpopular, very unpopular in the crypto community um, because they felt it was too restrictive to the growth, you know, of the stable coin industry. So those are the kind of consumer protections is in disclosures, I think. It's for the little guy that, as you say, usually gets fucked is because that's the one that I think, unfortunately, we just, we have to have minimal protections for them because if we don't, then they'll continue to be taken advantage of by scams, not just in, you know, digital assets, but everywhere. There's a fucking of the little guy in this that a lot of people don't think about. Or maybe they do. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. But when we talk about the little guy here in the functional breakdown of the, the systemic breakdown of the U.S. economy and the banks, we're thinking of the guy who got foreclosed on, or you know, the resulting recession that came after and people lost their jobs. There's a Bitcoin. I think there's a more important little guy thing scenario to this, where I think a few small. I, I struggle to say elite. I don't see Sam. I'm afraid as a, an elite, I just see him as like some guy who fucked a business up, who has these connections, right? But like him, Mashinsky, yeah, anyone else in this like, yeah, three hours capital, anyone else in this previous period who've essentially fucked this market, they've caused not just a problem for the little guy in the US, but they've caused a problem for the little guy in 
El Salvador who bought into Bukele's dream, who invested in Bitcoin. And if it gets worse, if there's like really draconian regulation or restrictions that is highly damaging to Bitcoin, they've damaged the guy in Belarus or they've damaged the guy you know, under an authoritarian state whereby like all the lady who needs money and she can't access money because you know, she's not allowed. You know, all these people who use this as a tool for freedom in less privileged countries, like that's a... That's the little guy they fucked who got this final tool for freedom. And that bothers me. Bothers bothers me a lot. This is why I think the work that you're doing, David Zell's doing, that's trying to defend Bitcoin is is super important. Do you do you think we're at any serious risk with Bitcoin? Or do you think it's got too big now? I don't think we're at risk of, let's say, a um outright bad. Yeah. But I do think the one um, dangerous area is, you know, KYC, AML, know your customer, any money laundering protections. I mean, look, in the 80s, it started because of the drug money. And back in the 80s, you could have a treasury official come take your whole bag of cash and you never get it back just because they found a little trace of cocaine on it. Dude, if you get on a plane with more than $10,000, they can take it and not give it back right. here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. So they'll, 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 so no one likes you having or using large amounts of cash. You know, and that was really to combat the drug wars of the 80s. And then we had the 2001, you know, September 11 thing. So everyone suddenly is like, we need to stop the terrorists too. And now there's a third thing that's added to the, the FATF, which is the Financial Action Task Force. It's an international conglomerate of all the different countries. They're focused on the proliferation of finance, uh, like how North Korea might be getting money from crypto, which is why, like, just not to, promote my nonprofit, but what I'm trying to do with value technology is show the Department of State how Bitcoin mining works and how it works in a way where we could, you know, help the United States to preserve us against these others. But but the BSA AML stuff, Peter, for the little guy, it's become like the bouncer at the club. And it's made the club more exclusive, you know. And and the problem is the bouncer's supposed to keep out the really bad people. You know, someone's gonna what if the bouncer, you know, doesn't let in somebody that just wants a beer that was able to get it last week? And and that's what I think because of the reliance of our system on the who's the customer, making sure they're not a terrorist, is has become so exclusive that it's it's it it actually bars people from the financial system. Some people it shouldn't be. So what what would be the right regulation? Some people think none. Let us figure it out. Some people say regulate the exchanges. Um, I certainly don't think any uh, regulation on unhosted wallets is uh, particularly bright. But what is, and this is obviously just your personal perspective, yeah. but what is the right types of regulation that you would agree with? Well, I think we need to get rid of um, the $200, or we give some sort of de minimis tax uh, advantage. So like if you have Bitcoin, it's under $200, you used it to buy coffee or whatever, that shouldn't be taxed. That's that's like, that's like something that I think we could actually let Bitcoin grow a little bit in the United that's States. That's in the Lummis Gillibrand bill, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's been, it's been pushed around for a while. And um, I do think that regulation of the exchanges is important after this. Um, it's not perfect, but as you were saying before, it's important with what Dodd-Frank does and the systemic risks, whether it's FTX or Binance, you need some regulators there and just overlook what's happening to make sure the little person isn't getting screwed. How would you do that if it's offshore? So the question would be then, what would be their appetite to operate in the United States? So one of the proposals is even like if I have a, let's say I have a bank in England, but I want to operate a foreign branch in the U.S., then I have to come under U.S. regulations. So you can operate without being in the U.S., but 
you know, you run a real danger because that they always talk about the long arm of the law. Like you can go in, if you touch one US customer, if they can prove you touch one customer, you're under US regulations. Um, and they'll come after you. Is that what happened to BitMEX? Essentially, yeah, was it, was, wasn't it? Um, well, I think BitMEX, um, if I'm not mistaken, they, they were offshore. They were, I think it was Seychelles. Is that, am I saying that? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, the way the CEO handled it, I don't remember his name. Arthur Hayes? Uh, yeah, it was not very good uh, for sort of dealing with regulators. And the one tip I would give that would probably upset a lot of your audience, but I'll say it anyway, is don't be disrespectful to regulators. It's kind of like just in life, just don't be respectful people. So the first thing he did was to say, like, come and get me mother effers, you know, on Twitter to the, C to the authorities that were trying to, like, that's not a good way to start the process, you know? It's kind of legendary though. Yeah. It is kind of like, I will, I will give the legendary, you know, F the man kind of thing, but. But they did come and get him. They did, but, and that's what I'm saying. And that's my point, right? Don't think because you're operating outside you know, in some small country that's tax advantaged and everything else, that that doesn't mean because the U.S. market is where a lot of the gravy is, you know, so that's why they're, they're going to want to operate in this marketplace. Hmm. But I do, I, I also think that, that beyond the exchanges is that we need to have um, some sort of disclosure system and maybe it's the crypto exchanges that once they get in, um, together and are regulated, need maybe to do something like an assessment the way it's done at the FDIC. You know, pool money together that's, which I get very, very frustrated because this is what Sam Bankman-Fried was promoting that I was so proud of him for before this all unraveled because he was going around saying, right, he was going to buy Celsius and Voyager and make the customers right. And it turned out his own house wasn't even in order. So to me, that whole thing is disgusting. But that idea is the right idea, right? How do you maybe protect the customers if you're gonna have these just global conglomerate crypto exchanges. So I think it comes down to just the, the, the too big to fail. You have to manage it if it's gonna just influence a large amount of customers. I do, I do think the wallet um, issue is gonna be the issue in, in this year in terms of the fight over whether unhosted wallets should be regulated. Cause you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren put out a bill, which by the way, it's more of a um, signal bill, but it's trying to say to the treasury that you should be regulating people's use of self-hosted wallets and that everybody is should have to go to BSA laws, even if you're, you know, just a node. Like enforcing that's going to be particularly hard. Yeah. And I think it, it they'll realize it misses because they don't want to enforce the whole system. You know, I've seen regulators twist things around in a way that just baffled me. Like the person that was running to be the head of the OCC, she ended up not getting nominated, but she actually had a paper out and the paper was arguing why Lightning was illegal. And it was saying the Lightning Network is actually just the way they were doing it on Wall Street because they're, get ready, they're taking it off chain. So because it's not on the blockchain, they're obfuscating those funds. And I'm like, does she even know the amounts of money that go back and forth between people on Lightning? Yeah. Like you're going after the wrong crowd. Like, and it just, but, but she was trying to basically say like, because it obfuscates, you know, that somehow lightning nodes should be under more regulatory scrutiny. And that drives me nuts. But I mean, you can, you can make an argument. It's still on chain. Y yes. Yes. That Bitcoin still exists on a chain. Well, Bitcoin it's still exists. It's just locked in, in motion. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but what, the, what, what upset me was that she was trying to make the analogy of, well, that's what we did with the mortgages, right? They uh. created a derivative of, you know, so it's like a derivative of Bitcoin that people are then trading. So then it could create. And I was just like, 
the problem, I'll say this about my, my fellow regulators, the risk of like them not being nice to me at the next like cocktail party I go to, which is like some of the stuff, you can't compare everything to the 2008 financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And when you start looking at it through that lens, you can't just, you shouldn't be looking at lightning through that lens. That's the biggest problem. Uh, I think is the government still views it as it's either terrorists or money launderers that are using this money. And because they're able to put that in a typology, they go after the things like the Bitcoin ATMs. They go after the, you know, um, mixers and tumblers of the world. You know, that's their targets because in their minds, that's the thing that can really cause damage. But they're, they're breaking things. That's the problem. Like they're breaking things because they're making it illegal, like with tornado cash or whatever. Like, and I, I just think that there's so much education that still needs to happen and also buy-in that like Bitcoin's actually a good thing. And that's the fight that David Zell and BPI is doing. That's why I support them with that because that's something people need to realize is Bitcoin isn't just a bad thing. I'll tell you, I was on, um, I was going to the Hill and I won't mention who the people were and I won't mention who the congressperson was, but I was trying to explain a little bit about what Bitcoin was and, um, and the person there was doing the same thing. And, but they were very aggressive. They were very upset about it. They actually thought that by people allowing Bitcoin to be used in the United States, we'd be vulnerable to North Korea. The vulnerable could come in and take over the US. And then they said to me, and with a straight face, and this is with the congressperson and three of their aides, and they're looking at me and they go, okay, well, we need you to do one thing. I'm like, what's that? They go, tell us who the president of Bitcoin is. So I said quickly, which was my first mistake, I go, there is no president of Bitcoin. And I realized that's not gonna work here because they kept asking, they thought I was hiding. So I said to them, I said, okay, well, you know the Federal Reserve? Think of the Federal Reserve, but it's like a closed system. Bitcoin's like a replacement for that, but it's an open system. And there was a little bit of buy-in. They still thought I was hiding who the president of Bitcoin was. So there's just so much educational efforts. Like they're still stuck in 2011, you know, and that's like- We're all the president of Bitcoin. Yeah, we're all, that's right. That's the way you say it. <laughs> yes. Are you finding the work you're doing in DC, there is an evolving and improving understanding and approve, uh, a more acceptance of Bitcoin? Is, um, is it happening? Is it slow or is it not happening? It's starting to happen. Um, I'll say I was really happy to see Senator Cruz on the show with you. Yeah. Um, I remember from the last year, I was talking to people in his office and you know, Senator Cruz's office is right across the aisle from Senator Lummis's office. And there's a period of time where the aides were trying to get as much information as they could on Bitcoin. And they wanted, they were reading books. The two senators were sharing books they were reading about it. I was able to actually share some information with their office to help them understand the whole energy issue so they could study up on that. And then he started talking about it publicly, like in Texas. So like there's, there's starting to be an understanding. And I think Cruz had one really interesting thing, which was called the Accept Act, which is he said, we should have some Bitcoin ATMs here in Congress. So like people, nice. and that, that like would have been, let's, yeah, let's get to that. Um, so there's starting to be, there's still just a lot of people that don't understand it and don't really know about it and it doesn't really matter to them. But like, I mean, well, first of all, it's, it's the 6th of January. We still don't have Congress in session unless while we've been taping this show, they finally figured out who the speaker is, right? So there's still a lot of chaos. He's done a deal with one person. You're talking about McCarthy? McCarthy. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. done a deal with one person. Oh, one of the 20? Yeah. Yeah. But here's the thing, Peter, there's, there's 19 to go and there's no real understanding of what they really want. You know, I mean, they nominated Donald Trump to be the speaker of the house. So, I mean, things are just chaotic <laughs> right now. I mean, yeah. Which is great, great for people who are anti-regulation because shit won't get done. 
Well, I will say, and um, I know it's a little controversial, but it's, it's not the worst thing in the world because I don't think the government needs to pay this much attention to crypto in the first place. Main reason they're trying to pay attention to it is because there's lots of other derivatives of Bitcoin, which are shit coins. I just call them derivatives. Yeah. And they're all trying to get safe and harbor, you know, regulations, things like that. Like nothing wrong with that. But like what I worry about, though, is as that happens, there's the possibility you might break things within Bitcoin. Like maybe you'll say, yeah, do self-hosted wallet custody. That shouldn't be allowed. That's a good thing. It'll all be on the exchanges. And then you're kind of screwing over Bitcoin. And because Bitcoin doesn't have a president or we're all presidents, that's where there does need to be some kind of representation because the Hill kind of works in a way where it's like, you have to kind of say who you're from. Like, where are you from? You know. Mm. So if you kind of just say, I'm not really from anywhere, they don't really know how to compute that. So I do think there has to be a, a really just a broader community effort that I think BPI is starting to harness to really direct so that people can get educated and understand and be able to say, well, no, we shouldn't just do this for all of them because then we're going to not let people do Bitcoin self-custody and that's not correct. Yeah, I mean, uh, prior to Bitcoin Policy Institute, Coin Center did a lot of great work, still does. You guys are doing great work now. Yep. Like There are people working on this. It was a question I put to David Zell. I put the same question to you. There are people who say, don't like, what are you doing? Like, just fucking ignore these politicians. Like, Bitcoin will do its thing. Let's just carry on. TikTok next block. Keep building. Don't worry about it. Uh, and then there's people like you and Zell who are working on, you know, actually not even just you and Zell. Like, CJ Wilson's yes. doing it. Um, Amanda. Um, Amanda Cavallari. Fucking love Amanda, by the way. She's yep. amazing. I th- actually, you know, CJ as well. And, like, so many good people are working on this. What do you say to people who are like, don't do this? You don't need to do this. Fuck them. Well, I'd love to know what David said, but I'll wait to hear his show to this response. But because um, I have a lot of respect for David, he's really smart, and I'm, I think he's building a lot of good things. He is the f- smartest 14 year old I've ever met. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's, I mean, we talk about Coin Center, people like look at him. And then when I met him, I decided to start working, helping him this year because I'm like, this is like the next Jerry Burdo. You know, he's a very, very sharp guy. Do you know his Bitcoin origin story? I don't know if I actually know that, which would be sad because I've spent so much time. How old are you, ish? I'm 49. You're older than me. Yeah. Shit. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. He discovered Bitcoin in second grade. Is that correct? I don't think it was second. I don't know when second grade is. I think it was like 11 or 12 or something. Seventh grade? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's in seventh grade. Yeah. <laughs> How old do you feel now? <laughs> yeah, very. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, what I would say is because I'm very reasonable. I do think we need a Bitcoin community that's involved, similar to like the NRA or the AARP, because we need to have that voice. But for the people- The NRA, fuck, they're, they're effective. They are. And that's what I'm saying is like the single issue voter, you know, we connect with people where it's like, you know, you don't want someone to take your guns, you know, we don't want someone to take your Bitcoin. But the the thing about this is I say to them, you know, you may not care what the government's doing. And you may think what I'm doing is a total waste of time. And I'm wasting my time. And I get asked that a lot, believe me. And what I say is that's true, but here's the problem. They're thinking about you. Don't you want someone communicating with the people that are spending all their time looking at Bitcoin, looking at Lightning, that might be trying to screw the space? Like, yes, is Bitcoin gonna work? Are we gonna see this revolution through and everything? I mean, I think any help we can get along the way is a, is a positive help. So I, I respect the people that don't. I, I think most people, when they say that, Peter, that, but they're also the people that need a bank like IndyMac to be open so they can pay their bills and go to work and keep a happy family. So at the end of the day, no one really lives on an island. Yeah. I think Zell said, if you don't like what I'm doing, just ignore me. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter. 
Yeah. There's a matter to you. Um, yeah. And he's still in seventh grade, so. Seventh <laughs> grade, yeah. Honestly, like, oh, he's so smart. Yeah. I'm so impressed with him. Yeah. He's one of the most impressive people I've, like, ever met. Not even just in Bitcoin. He just blows my mind with the way he's able to articulate the points he wants to make. Uh, yep. uh, yeah, I love that dude. Okay, so look, the the new director of the National Currency Enforcement Union, by yeah. the way, which I never heard, uh, the DOJ, uh, a virtual assets unit, the FBI, uh, Yuan Young Choi. So I had to add this so I could actually read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Um, yeah, I know. She got that position because she defended the jail time for Ross Ulbrich. So what's the background to that? Because Danny was telling me about this. And I was like, you fucking what? Yeah, yeah. I, I, so the reason I thought to bring this up on your show is I saw one of your most recent shows and you were talking um, with, uh, you know, the BTC sessions about the, the Canadian yeah. trucker controversy. So the National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Unit was actually set up, uh, enforcement team was set up in... Um, uh, October of 2021, but they put in a leader for it, the first director, and it was right at the time of the Canadian, you know, issues when Bitcoin was being confiscated. And I think law enforcement around the world were looking at what was happening in Canada, being like, we need to maybe be prepared for this. So the NSET team does some good work. They are very involved in looking at Sam Bankman-Fried. But here was the thing, and this is the point about Ung Young Choi, okay, who she she was the one who in the appeals process fought to keep Ross Albright in where he is now, right? So that he couldn't get out of jail. So she's the one that successfully did that. So she's a piece of shit. She, in my world. She, I she, don't answer she, for everyone. I, I, yeah, I, I, I understand that. No, and, 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 and I pointed to this when I heard that she was the one being promoted to be the director. So what, what I, I'm bringing this up because I'm trying to say what kind of message and what is the U.S. government still thinking? They still think people who are using Bitcoin are pieces of shit. Right, uh -huh. and what they're saying is, we need to put the person that was able to get Ross Albright in charge of our national cryptocurrency enforcement team, which I don't think a lot of Bitcoin people like know about or understand. But that's the view. Like, there's younger lawyers, is what I worry about, who are trying to make a name for themselves, like her. So they've rewarded her by putting us the leader, like the you know, it's like the Elliot Ness of mm -hmm. this, who's going after people, and they're still coming at it from the angle of what's the you know what's the end game. So. I wish her well. I just think it's a really bad signal, and it's a it's something that scares me. Quite frankly, scares me to even mention her name or talk about it. Right? Because can you go see her? I could. I mean, she's spoken at events. I'd be happy to talk with her. I'd love to understand if her thought of this system has developed. Can we get her on this podcast? I can try. I've I, I've I, so I know you have Hoddle and stuff on your podcast. Like I was able to get Hester Pierce to come in the clubhouse one time and talk to some folks. So I, I I'll help you. It's purse, purse. Sorry, yeah. Mr. Purse. No, I'm telling you in case you see I her, know, because uh, I said it the first time I met her. So I, I, I actually that was one of my first. Like uh, I did, I interviewed her at the SEC, which mm. was like a really intimidating place to go to as a little new podcaster. Yeah. I fucking adore her though. She's like, what? She's she is one of us, yep. and she stands up for us. Uh, but just make sure it's purse. Yeah, she doesn't like that. <laughs> Same with Lumis. I remember yeah. that the Lumis. Lumis. I've got a Lumis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another Thank absolute you. hero of ours. Yeah, but I think she'd be uh, talking. Uh, I mean, first of all, what does Nset do? I think she'd come on. I mean, it'd be interesting to hear what she was doing with the whole SBF thing because apparently they supported the you know, figuring all that out. So 
Yeah, I probably won't call her a piece of shit in the interview. <laughs> Hopefully she doesn't listen to this, but I'm not editing it out. Well, she's a lawyer, so maybe they're, you yeah. know, most lawyers are used to whatever names you call them. So. Yeah, I'm not, not fans of lawyers. Um, uh, this is flying by, and we've still got a couple of things we've not even talked about. Um, I'm going to call it here, because I think that's a good place, unless you want to talk about this Biden executive order. Is that an important issue? Because if it is, we will. Um... Don't just say no, just I'm trying to win it. I, I, I think I can cover it in just a couple of minutes. Yeah, I would like it. to just, so I just think it's important to understand where the Biden executive order came from. So I think Bitcoiners need to understand that there are a few principles that at the beginning of 2022, the government wanted to keep intact. And this was conversations between the Federal Reserve, Treasury, the White House, because they saw something was happening with Bitcoin or they always just call it crypto, right? So they're just looking at the larger crypto ecosystem and they felt they wanted to do something about it. So they basically agreed on a few principles and they wanted to keep these principles intact and they used Biden's executive order to make this happen. And so this is important to think about what the, where the government's coming from when it comes to Bitcoin. The first principle is that you can't do anything that's gonna ever affect the ability of the Federal Reserve to set monetary policy. The state must be the one. It cannot be a white paper from someone and we don't even know who they are that's gonna dictate what the monetary policy of the United States is. So it's like no surprise, but like that has to be intact. Number two, regulating the financial system and making sure like you were saying, there can't be bleed over from the stuff into the regular financial system and consumer protection. So a safe and sound financial system with consumer protection that needs to apply to crypto as well. And then the final part is the illicit, uh, illicit finance. And that's really where the NSET and FBI and all these folks come in is making sure there aren't illegal things that are happening that could upset us either on a domestic or foreign front. So, those are the three things that you've seen. That's why like, like this has gotten so much attention this year with the Biden executive order. Gave a lot of opportunities for us to educate though, to kind of dismiss a lot of Bitcoin fud about energy, things like that. But I would just say like, understanding that no matter what's happening in Washington, realizing there, and I think everyone knew this already, but just so it's clear, it's like the direction is not that, hey, we want to adopt the Bitcoin standard right now, right? Like, mm -hmm. The direction is how do we prevent it from ever adopting a Bitcoin standard? We must maintain which is sad, I think, but it's what most large, you know, countries that have a hard time, United you know, Kingdom had a hard time reversing when we moved away from, you know, navigating the waterways around the world and it wasn't all about your, you know, your ships. And I think it's, they're still just stuck on the US dollar concept. So it's gonna be hard. Okay. Well, listen, this, this was fascinating. It's just like flown by. Um, and it was great to get into some of that 2008 financial crisis uh, area because that is something I'm, you know, massively interested in just understanding you know, where we've come from, where we're going. Um, we're going to have to do this again sometime. Absolutely. Happy to. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Maybe on. we'll come to you next time, but appreciate you coming in, Jason. Um, uh, you mentioned earlier, oh, I don't want to promote my business. You totally promote yourself. You come here and uh, offer us your time. So where do you want to send people to? Um, well, you can follow me uh, on Twitter at, at Regulatory Jason. And um, I'm, I offer this to everybody. I'm happy to help you. If you ever want to talk to a politician about Bitcoin, I can help coach you through that. Um, I have a consulting firm, Keybridge Advisors, where I help people navigate Washington, D.C. and regulations. 
And my nonprofit is Value Technology Foundation. Would love it if you wanted to help support our mission or if you want to educate people and help with educating other government people. It's another angle I think that's important uh, to go about. And of course, my man David Zell and, and you know Bitcoin policy, definitely helping them get to a point where they have enough funding to be secure, to keep running things for five or 10 years. So I think we need them. So. Agreed. We should do that. Uh, I think we did one yesterday. So anyway, awesome. listen, yeah. thank you for coming on. Really appreciate your time. This was great. We should definitely do it again. Stay in touch. Anything you need, just reach out to me or Danny. Thank you. Thank you. All right. What'd you make of that? Do you enjoy that? I've got to tell you, that whole bit where we covered what happened during the global financial crisis fascinated me. I would love to talk about that more with Jason. Love to get him back on the show. It was a wild time, actually. I mean, I bought a house at the top of the crisis and the prices plummeted. So hell of an experience to go through. And listen, no matter what you think of regulation, I know some of you people out there are like, just fuck the regulators, just ignore them, let's just keep building TikTok another block every 10 minutes. But look, it's happening. There are regulators circling, well, they're certainly circling crypto, but in doing so, they'll be circling Bitcoin. So we need to keep an eye on this. And I was very grateful to have Jason come and talk about it and glad that he's backed in for us down in D.C., All right, as I said, I'm going to be heading out to New York on Sunday. We've got two events in there if you want to join us. At 2.45 on Tuesday the 14th, on Valentine's Day, we're going to be watching the Rail Bedford stream at PubKey. Come and join us. And on the... Thursday the 16th we're going to be hosting our second WBD live event it's a live event with Jun Seth it's got a QA and a afterwards and a hangout that is also at PubKey now if you want to get a ticket for WBD live you can get that at whatbitcoindid.com also if you want to support the show we've refreshed our Patreon we're going to be publishing loads of like exclusive content for patrons so head over to patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid and if you've got any questions about this or anything else please do get in touch my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com 